Jamie Roberts, Jamie Q. Roberts, like uh, an homage to QAnon, I believe. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think my parents were, yeah, they could see the future however many years ago it was. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to remember J Jamie Q. Roberts. I believe you are the only Jamie Q. Q. Roberts that I came across when, mm. when stalking you before this podcast. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. You know, it's funny, despite all the QAnon stuff, um, I hadn't actually thought about that, but of course, yeah. Because that's my, because you know, like in America, there's too many humans. And so everyone's got to have middle initials. You can't just be like, you know, Brian Smith, because of course there's only one of those in Australia. But in America, there'd be 14. So you've got to be not even just Brian F. Smith, but Brian F.W. Smith. Yeah. Yeah. We do two middle names sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Jamie Roberts is kind of, there's a few out there, you know, some kind of Welsh rugby player and whatnot. And so seeing as I had the cue, I thought it actually is my middle name. So, um, yeah, I mean. Is it Quentin? Q-U-A-S-A-R. It used to be my first name. Oh, okay. Quasar Roberts. But Bogan, Australia, circa 1980, wasn't ready for it. So my mum kind of would be like, they'd be saying, oh, yeah, what's his name? And my mum would say, Quasar. And they'd be like, fucking come again? She's like, all right, Jamie. Yeah, that's all right. Which is a bit sad, really. But, you know. Is Quasar named after anyone? Is there a person named Quasar? It's just a, you know, like, look it up. I mean, if, if you had a, if you had like a producer, well, not producer, like an assistant like Rogan, you, or maybe Elliot's around. You could say, Elliot, pull it up on Wikipedia. It's not. <laughs> I don't have that. I have a phone. It, I can do that. You need that. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, pull it up on Wikipedia and, um, you know. Well, like, Elliot, you know, do you for me? I don't know why I took on an Australian accent. I just want to be that naggy woman who, like, tells her husband what to do all the time. He's not my husband. But, Get uh, here now. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The key to a good relationship is just to bitch at your husband, treat him like a slave. I've learned that. Um, so Quasar, who is he? Who was he? No, no, it's just an intergalactic thing. It's like a, it's oh. like, a, it's like a, a astronomical phenomenon, you know, like way out in the distant universe. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's like a cool thing which represents, like, you know, like your parents' lofty ambitions for you. It's, it's, part, it's part sort of California... 1977 you know part hippie you know part i mean that's not to mention that your dad was an absolute and is i met him the other day is an absolute genius so it kind of is a, a name that a genius might give their child with with yeah, expectations so too high was it did you feel uh, like you were in his shadow growing up i don't know I mean, I didn't really grow up with my father much, but it's an, I mean, cause he left when I was young, but um, I mean, I, I don't know. I wouldn't really say I was in his shadow, but I mean, but if you really think about it consciously, um, yeah, I've still got a ways to go. I think to, uh, you know, there's still time. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You've got plenty I've still got of a ways to go to, to reach whatever heights he reached, but uh, I don't know. Look, to be honest, I'm optimistic. Yeah. I think, I think there's still a fair chance. I am too. But yeah. So I kind of, it's that kind of stuff, though, that he had in mind, you know, like give your child an exceptional name and, and the, rest will, the rest will sort itself out. 
Well, you got a sci-fi name and now you've written two sci-fi books. So yeah, sci-fi name, yeah. Yeah, it, it goes it goes along with the tie pretty well. Um, yeah. Your dad, just uh, before I get into you, your dad was, he was a computer chip manufacturer or he made computers in, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, is that right? Yeah, like it's... If, if I didn't have a day job, see, one of the reasons I really need to make my fortune and I haven't been concentrating nearly enough on it, but I'm trying to work really hard on it now um, because it's always that, it's sort of that kind of trade-off, you know, do you, do you spend your life writing and be poor um, or do you then have a quick go at making your fortune so that you can actually not be a, a struggling writer but just a comfortable writer? So, um, so I was like, you know, 20s was all poor artists. And then I'm like, shit, you know, got to get my shit together. But why am I talking about all of this? Is that I got a book to write about him because um, there's not enough time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm too busy trying to make my fortune now. Um, but I'll get it to it in a couple of years. Now, he he um, basically invented Australia's first computer, which is, a, which is no small thing. And then by the early 80s, he was in Silicon Valley with a multinational computer company and like he was this kind of close to being the Aussie Steve Jobs. And there's just, who, who knows? It all sort of eventually collapsed. But I mean, the stories he tells are just so, I mean, they're just thrilling. I, in the house where I grew up when I was a kid, he was in the basement, you know, in God knows when, 1971 or something, back before there were computer screens and he invented a computer screen. I mean, others were doing it too, but he's there with just, you know, whatever the fuck engineer, electrical engineers do, but, you know, magnetic fields and wires and alfoil and all of that, and, like, actually crafting computer screens, which he then, you know, through his company, Electronic Control Systems, eventually worked up and he was selling them to, I don't know, God knows what, businesses all around Australia, the tax office, and then, you know, one thing led to another. He was then making computers and, yeah, like, he had... I don't know, you could go on and on about this stuff, but um, he had, he, at one point, I think in the early 80s, he rang up um, Mr. Porsche, you know, the guy who designs Porsche and said, hey, can you, um, can you design, you know, a computer for me, you know, the shell of it. So, so it's actually beautiful because, you know, one of Steve Jobs' claim to fame, claims to fame eventually was let's actually make these damn boxes look good. And so my dad had this thing called the Emu, which was this kind of computer on a neck which kind of moved and it was, it was really genuinely beautiful, you know? And so it's like this whole history, which um, it's, 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 it's almost lost, you know, to the sands of time. Like I, I heard recently, well, not recently, years ago, like there was some, I heard, <laughs> this kind of really pissed me off. I heard someone um, talking to the powerhouse museum just randomly on the radio and they were talking about Australia's first computer or something. And they were saying, right, there was some company called Osborne, I think it was. And, and I'm just like, I'm thinking, no, wait, wait. They were the people that bought my dad's company when, when all the shit went down. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, it's actually my dad who had Australia's first computer. But it's like, it's just, it's almost, it's almost lost to the sands of time. And he's getting older and older, but I've got to write this book. But <sighs> I don't know. It's, There's no telling what sort of impact he would have had as well. Uh, not would have had, but did have. Like... He yeah. interacted with Steve Jobs and all those people, and he had a company that was competing with other companies. And and yeah. there's so much different. There's so much like uh, exchange of ideas and just all these little things that happen. Like he yeah. was 
quite possibly a very integral piece of history that we just kind of don't remember anymore. I don't know. But yeah, like it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty wild, you know, just hearing these stories of just rolling into California, you know, some fucking bogan Aussie, um, you know, just rocking up and meeting with the venture capitalists and be just like, yeah, I want to, you know, yeah, can you give me such and such? And just, just, it, it, I mean, there is such a, there is such a wonderful romance about Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s. And yeah, he was there and um, yeah. Showing up, wow. But I mean, I, I think uh, I think you aren't too far behind him in terms of, um, I mean, you're quite the Renaissance man yourself, I would say. Yeah. Like, a university lecturer, you've written a bunch of books, four, four books? You have an- uh, like two, two, two genuinely published books, which are, um, I'm just seeing if they're on the shelf. I don't know. I think I gave away all my free copies. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like two genuinely published books, but yeah, they're academic skills books. So they're not exactly exciting. They're more like, you know, apprentice books where you're, you know, you, you're glad they happen, but, you know, let's be realistic, you know, they're not blowing the world away or anything. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, yeah, so a sci-fi novel, but I couldn't get that one published, but that's cool. You know, it's day may yet come and, um, I've got another sci-fi novel, which, I sh yeah, I mean, it's pretty much done. I just got to find the time to get it out there. Um, but yeah, work. I, I think as, as I, yeah, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty much on the cusp of doing a book about the IDW, yeah. intellectual dark web, which I'm genuinely excited about. I think that's that's kind of the first real project I can get my teeth into. Um, I mean, by real, I mean like you know, high stakes project. Um, and I think that's, I think I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty close to swinging the book contract for that. I oh, mean, I, wow. yeah. So like, you know, like you go through the whole proposal process, you pitch it, you know, to the editor, blah, blah, blah. It just, it's a sort of a long process, but it's looking promising. And um, yeah, hopefully I can write that. And that, that's going to be really exciting because, you know, like so many of us, you know, the whole ADW phenomenon in the last five years has been, um, you know, like intellectual crack. So <laughs> You know, it's been quite the whirlwind ride for us in so many ways, like, <laughs> you know, from enlightenment to like, you know, meta radicalization and God knows what else. And, uh, and, and so I'd, I'd be, yeah, I'm very excited about that. And I'm hoping that, yeah, if, if that works out, then that might open pathways to, to other projects such as, you know, writing, you know, like as a, you know, as like an intellectual, as an artist, you really want to, I mean, you want to operate on the highest level and in the biggest high stakes game. I mean, there's no point mincing words about it, no. but it's hard to find the pathway through to the high stakes game. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, well, podcasts it, 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 it may happen. Podcasts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you gotta be heard. People have to hear you say, I mean, people have to have a place where they can hear you say things. So, yeah. Uh, uh, so this is a good this is a good good thing to do have a little chat talk a whole lot of shit you know yeah and then people can talk shit about you on the internet i had a video it still fucks with me a little bit i had this video uh, a few months ago that went kind of viral it had like 180,000 views and 180,000 yeah i got like so much it was just a um, an instagram like one minute video i was just talking to, i was just like it was kind of funny and um i got so much hate on it and that was the first time I've ever experienced like internet hatred. And I kind of stopped making videos for a while afterwards because I needed to process like what was going on. And yeah, I, I still haven't quite gotten through it, but uh, 
That's you mean outside? What? You mean outside? You mean outside just like fucking up on a YouTube comment or something? Like proper hate? Oh, no. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't super hate. It was just like people calling me, like people calling me insensitive and stupid. It was, uh, it was a video of me. There, there was this, I love it. I still, I still laugh at it. There was this woman who went to the, um, to the police department and pretended she knew sign language and so she like did like fucking made up sign language to as a while the police chief was like giving this speech and i was saying that she was an inspiration because she just went out she didn't even need to know sign language to become a sign language interpreter like she just had so much gall and and anyone who has imposter syndrome needs to look up to this woman and obviously people got super offended over this because what about the deaf people? No, I mean, they can read. Deaf people can follow What about read. the deaf people? Those captions. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, The, the, anyway. poor, the poor deaf people who, who <laughs> have no sense of humor. What about them? <laughs> the poor, miserable, humorless deaf people who, who, who want to be excluded from comedy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But that reminds me, that reminds me of the, I mean, that there was the Nelson Mandela, wasn't there the Nelson Mandela funeral sign language guy? Oh, was that was that him? Was that the funeral? Yeah. But I mean, is that? Are you talking about another actual? No, case? there was another one. There was another one. It was. Uh, the, I love that that Nelson Mandela sign language dude. I used him in lectures. Incredible. Like, and he was just how the fuck did he get up there? <laughs> and he's how did he get there? How did he how did he convince them? The but problem was, is. The problem is that if you're hiring a sign language person, you don't have anyone on staff that knows sign language. But he was just there, complete straight face, and he just kept doing the same dumb gestures. So I don't know. I, I don't know your one, but but yeah. I mean, the point is, I compl I'm completely with you. I'm like, geez, that was that was good stuff. Yeah. According to some of the comments, she like she was like spelling out some words, so she knew like super basic sign language, and then just made up like the rest of it. It was cool. It was really cool. Um, but like, but were, were were deaf people offended, or were other people just offended? No, no, no not deaf people. They they weren't i don't i didn't see any deaf people that were offended it was just other people who were offended on behalf of people they had never met and and don't yeah, know wow. either um i would love i had this like i had this idea of um in this in this fictional world where this happens again like oh you can criticize me if you show a receipt for a charity that you've donated to for deaf people <laughs> like you can i mean it's not i would never do it but it's like oh how about you get you get to voice your concerns once you have proof that you've actually done something for this community instead of just being offended on someone else's behalf? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> these, these are all the IDW, sort of the meta IDW questions of, uh, yeah. What, how, 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 to respond to, how to respond to people who get offended. Yeah, and <laughs> I really like what you do, actually. I was thinking about this today in... Um, so you lecture, are you international relations, right? But I think some yeah, international, international relations, international security, but no one really knows what international security is. Let's call it international relations. Um, politics, popular culture, political philosophy, that sort of in that area. And so it's a bit of, yeah, a bit of, a bit of, you know, like what you see on the news and then a bit more just, you know, kind of deeper, yeah, deeper human nature type stuff and, um, you know, a bit of Rick and Morty, basically. I had this question. It was a bit of Rick and Morty. All right. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. 
A fair, a fair bit of Rick and Morty. Yeah, it's very important to ter- to uh, to terrorists. I believe they some of them worship Rick and Morty, um, terrorizing McDonald's to get them to buy more Szechuan sauce. Um, but uh, so there's this uh, this thing I wanted to ask you, which is kind of on my mind a lot. And so in in IDW type circles, like you look at Ben Shapiro videos, and you know a lot of the clips are like Ben Shapiro owns the libs. You know, it's like all this. It's very combative, and yeah. I think. In our media, there's this kind of idea that you can't really talk to liberals. And, you know, to be fair, like, when I tried to talk to to really hardcore liberals, I used to live in Seattle, and it's, like, super liberal city. And I was also not quite as good good of a a communicator as I was, as I am now. But it seemed like (laughs) people are just endlessly triggered. And I would also be triggered, and then they would trigger me, and then it would kind of escalate. But uh, from from what I've talked to you about in... uh, Codependence. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's go to Bennett. That's exactly what it is. But somehow, according to you, uh, in your lectures, you maybe you trigger them, but you don't like you can have these conversations with very liberal university students, and I think that's quite a valuable skill to have. And I wonder how you do that. I, I don't know if I don't know if I do have the skill. And I should also say, like like on paper, I'm I'm pretty liberal myself. Like when you actually top up my policies you know they, sure, they pretty sure. much we, we all you know what i mean but, but you talk about yeah. the idw i mean you're talking about ben shapiro you're talking about jordan peterson like yeah they're, but they're essentially nazis in a lot of the in the eyes of a lot of liberals. yeah i know and look uh, to be honest sometimes because i'm because i'm trying to work out write this book and i'm trying to work out how i'm going to do it i i mean part of me kind of wishes that ben shapiro wasn't part of the whole thing but I mean, he is, and it's fine, and I'll, and I'll work it in because it because the thing is, when you say IDW, people think of him almost more than anything, and I'm like, you know, he's not really what I came for. You know, I generally, I mean, look, yeah, like I'm interested in a lot of Peterson, but I think, I don't know, you know, what, what does what does Lex always talk about? You know, be careful when you uh, look into the abyss, lest the abyss looks into you. I think Peterson's you know, suffered from a bit of that. So that so when people talk IDW, they're, they're often they often think of Peterson and Shapiro. But I mean I'm I generally am listening to the people who are left of center more. Let's be honest, you know, exactly. the Rogans, the Weinsteins, Weinsteins, um, you know, um, and I don't know, the Pinkers, um, Jonathan Haidt, yeah. uh, all the others, you know, they they tend to be the ones I'm 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 learning more from. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Back back to back to teaching. Look, I don't know. Um, I struggle with 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 the teaching myself because I, I, I you know I've got I've got a bit radicalized. <laughs> so yeah, I've got I've got radicalized towards the IDW at different times where you or sort of in that space a bit where you you lose a bit of perspective. Um, and you sort of yeah so. But I mean, what I always try to remember as, as a teacher is like the golden rule is if you can keep the dialogue space open, if you can, if it's really, really obvious to your students that they can say whatever the hell they want to you, then even if I'm heading off in the wrong direction, then um, which I do from time to time, especially when you get into a bit of a bad place emotionally, then they can actually hammer you. And um and if you kind of let yourself be open to that, like it really hurts. And um, I don't know, like, you know, I had a pretty heavy lecture 
I did a four-part lecture series that was mostly on the IDW, and I the first one went really well, and I was just kind of, I don't know, like I was just, I was in the zone, and it was great. I was talking about Plato, you know, and it was really good stuff, and, you know, it, it felt, it went well. The second one got heavy, and I sort of was in the dark place, and it kind of descended into this sort of, the lecture basically ground to a halt after an hour and descended into just a sort of a one-hour Zoom pitched battle between me and a bunch of the students um, which is kind of wild, you know, there I am kind of chatting, having tech problems and they're just like, just throwing one thing at me after another in the chat and all of that. And it was, it was pretty grueling. And like afterwards, I was just like, comments they leveled at you. Honestly, can't even really remember, yeah. but it was just, I mean, I was trying to make the point. I mean, the broader point I was trying to make is that at university, shit just gets too black and white. And it really just, it's too much just like, you know, capitalism, you know, you just bitch about capitalism, free point, you know, use the word privilege, free point, you know. So I was trying to like open up the space, but there was something in me that wasn't itself in a good space. I was too, I was too radicalized against the woke perspective in a sense, rather than being at peace with the world. And they could kind of sense that. And so they were pushing me on a lot of points. And so even though I was responding honestly and pretty well, there was still, there was like a deeper emotional engagement. Um, there was actually, it was hard at the time, but good for me because then it kind of whacked me back into alignment. And I realized I was actually not being quite balanced enough. And so then the last two lectures, I was kind of a lot more sort of Zen and balanced and magnanimous. That's the key word, magnanimous. Cause like, it's such a fine balance. Like you, you've got to have opinions and you've got to have critiques and you've got to make judgments. I mean, we all do that. You know, you've got to, I mean, that's, that's, that's what humanity is about. You know, I mean, we have to work out how to act. We have to look for the patterns and discount the bad ones and select the good ones. Um, and yet even when we discount the bad ones and they're sort of manifestations in people, at the same time, you've got to not, you know, get too radicalized in, um, in like uh, despising the bad ones as well. It's, it's just this sort of fine balance, this sort of Zen state, which, you know, I think we all have to kind of search for. Okay. Um, so when you say you, you, you let them pitch their ideas to you or, or like criticize you is, is probably the word. Um, I find that we can often get kind of tied up in these like quite intellectual battles. And sometimes I feel like, uh, and I, uh, here, here's a good example. This happens to me. When I hear that someone's like a Marxist or a communist, right, I get, I get, a, I get triggered, uh, for lack of a better word. My emotions get riled up. And it's funny because, well, when I think of Nazis, I don't get that. Although I know that Nazis are awful people, but perhaps it's because I've never actually met a Nazi. Maybe if I met a Nazi, I would, I would also get, but specifically communists, um, I just can't, I can't like, I, I, I don't talk to them nowadays, or I don't talk to them about, about politics when I meet them. And because it, it just yeah, ends sure. up, because I have this idea of like, they are going to do something which is going to destroy my, my safety, my, my country essentially, right? They wanna, they wanna like change the way the government works and they are essentially planning for the destruction of the country that I love. And so, and, and to me, it's, it's quite this, it takes this one person and it creates this catastrophic event that's that's imagined around them. And 
anyone who's anti-Trump, well, I was anti-Trump to an extent, but like anyone who's like a hardcore, like fuck Trump sort of person also felt that way. And anyone who is kind of very liberal probably feels the exact same way about someone who's not liberal. And so what I'm kind of wondering is like when people are in this very triggered emotional state, how do you get through to them? Maybe it's not get through to them, but how do you, how do you, like, how do you manage to have a conversation with them that, that stays respectful? I, I, I just, I'm not quite understanding. Um, don't be triggered yourself. Yeah. If they're triggered, don't right. be triggered. Back. Yeah. Like, like, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm like it. I'm, I'm at Christmas, right, over Christmas. Wait, that didn't make sense. I'm at my parents over Christmas. And, you know, I, I, won't, I won't name names or go into details, but things can get a little bit heated sometimes. And, you know, people can start objecting to, uh, say, how you parent your children. Uh, because I have, as I think we've discussed, I have certain parenting philosophies that are, you know, fairly on the free range side of the spectrum and my more uh, kids, by the way. your kids are <laughs> and i want to ask you more about parenting later because that is yeah, we'll get to I, it, I care so much about how people's children are raised I, that's a huge judgment for me so anyway yeah, it's awesome so it's such a cool topic yeah but but the point is is that i so i've got rel- I like I'm, I'm in a good space at the moment i'm kind of at peace with the world which i'm really happy with because i haven't been at peace with the world for about four years um and the thing is, is I'm, I'm getting a fair amount of heat about my parenting. And, um, and you know, I'm like, eh, I don't agree, but whatever. And it just, it just didn't hurt me in my heart. I was just, I disagreed, but I was above being triggered. Whereas in the past, I'd get all, oh, oh this is what I think about parenting. I really believe in it, you know? And it's like, my beliefs haven't changed. My parenting hasn't changed, but... I don't know. So I, this, this, I hear what you're sort of saying about Marxists and communists. Interestingly, some of the some of the some of the best students I've had are communists. And sometimes when you get a really good one, um, they're actually very open-minded because I think the some of the real not not just not the kind of really annoying ones who are very sloganistic, but the ones who genuinely believe in the project also believe that they're not really going to be able to force it on everyone. And that they, they probably have to do it with open dialogue. So I had a student semester one this year who um, he was like a hardcore communist, but man, he was, he was fucking awesome because I could just tell in his disposition, he was ready to talk. So we would go toe to toe in class, but it was wonderful. Cause like, you know, I'm, I'm not a communist. I'm sympathetic to the, I'm sympathetic to critiques of capitalism, but um but there's no, there's no fucking way I'm in the commune because I'll be doing all the work. And I, I mean, I've, you know, like I, I've worked with lazy colleagues. I see how it goes. You know, that's how I, that's how I came to my position. It's like, I didn't know I was the conscientious one. Turns out I'm the conscientious one who does all the fucking work, you know? And so if I'm in the commune, I'm going to be doing all the work, sorting the shit out and I'm going to be really pissed off, (laughs) you know? Absolutely. Have you seen that leftist meme? I mean, it's like this Twitter feed, I think, of like, what's your job in the leftist commune? And everyone's like, I'm going to make coffees. I'm going to read tarot. <laughs> it's like ditch digger, ditch digger, uh, ditch digger in the freezing cold and ditch digger. I'm like, that's that's your only job. You're going to you're going to be like building shit. I mean, it's it's incredible. Um, but anyway, no, but this is still I mean, I don't know. But there's still a, a way to run on this one. 
how to not get triggered. So look, right. Yeah. So actually proper communists and Marxists never really triggered me much. You know, I got, I got, I get, I have this line, which I used to say to my students, you know, the only thing that offends me is people who are offended. Mm. And I used to think that was kind of funny and it was like, showed me in a good light, but I realized it's that like, I shouldn't even be offended by people who get offended. But that, that really triggered me because I really, really, really like open conversations. I like us. I like people to connect. That's like my, fundamental philosophy and to you know explore complexities together you know like I, I want to be able to do that and so when you come up against people on the woke spectrum there's often just this horrible wall there um and so that that really really you know that really insulted me um and so that you know that would kind of wind me up and trigger me and so I, I don't know what how, how do you get you, how did you get over the trigger I don't know I maybe maybe even just weird stuff like a bit of success in life, higher self-esteem. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's it, it's hard to say. Like you know, I've, I've had a, as I said, I had like I had a really bad four years, but in the last six months, the universe has been very kind to me, and so maybe um, I don't know. Maybe when fortunes shift, it's actually easier to be generous to other people. But I, I don't, I mean, it's such an important question because, I mean, I mean, all, aren't, aren't so many of the problems of humanity just the fact, I mean, everyone knows this, the fact that we other others. And so even if we're kind of right, you know, you still don't want to other others. And so how do you, how do you, how do you get out of that state? I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Op open yourself up, become vulnerable. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really important it's question. Tough. I, I tough. No, no, it's just, it's just tough. I think I'm thinking I'm at the end of the line. I'm, I'm asking my brain for some more good material, but it's uh, it's come up against uh, it's at the end of the line. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> um, I do find that. So I, I kind of got into the IDW through. Oh, I, I've I've always I've been a huge Rogan fan for years, like bordering on a decade now. And um, and then oh Jordan wow, longer than me. Yeah, I I think well, I Rogan's the heart of it all. Sorry. Rogan's like the heart of it all in a way. He's yeah. like the godmother, the godfather. Yeah. yeah he but he, he has a pretty good attitude. I mean, he, he's, a, he's, he's a bit, you know, he's a bit edgy sometimes, but generally he's, generally I feel like he does have a pretty good attitude and disposition. I think he models it. I think he models open-mindedness quite well. I don't, there doesn't seem to be that much darkness in him. You know? And I think that's really important. There is something about, I think, his rigorous exercise routine, which you also have, that, that seems to really bring out the best in people. I mean, people who go mm. hardcore on exercise, like you run, you told me, how many, how many kilometers do you think you run a week? Yeah, I go hardcore on exercise. Yeah. I can't, I cannot, I mean, I, I, that, that's what excited me so much. I mean, so much excited me about the IDW. But to find a bunch of people who were, you know, let's say center left, or maybe, you know, or maybe just center, whatever. But who were just, but who were, who really embraced the physical and exercise and competition and things like that, which through all my university experience, you just weren't allowed to be into that stuff. It was like shameful. And it's like, you know, I, I love smashing myself with exercise, with running. I love competing. I love getting better. I like beating people. And, you know, not in a really mean way, but that stuff is just so fulfilling. And so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I can run generally, it's not that much, 60 to 90 Ks a week. 
but you know when it's going well you know what will i do i'll do when i'm really when i when i'm managing it well i mean I've, the wheels have fallen off a bit over christmas just because of various reasons generally december's not a good month for training for me but three speed sessions a week two to three speed sessions a week um a long run i don't know 20 22 k's a couple of easy runs running six or seven days a week yeah it's just um it just does wonders for you for your mental health you can feel it like before you run your brain is just glass half empty about the world you're triggered your magnanimity is down you run and then you can just feel the perspective just shift and your spirit lift you feel yourself becoming a better person um so yeah like it's yeah i, I really really identify with that side of rogan for sure yeah and and the and the just the bush stuff and just like i mean i i'm not a hunter <laughs> but I, I dig what he's into, you know, like, I, like that, that's like such a taboo thing as well. You know, can you imagine like being a hunter? It's like so wrong, you know, but uh, I mean, like, I might as well say, even though it's, you know, yeah, I feel stupid about it, but you know, I'm, I'm a vegan, but at the same time, I really sort of dig that he's a hunter, you know, yeah. like I don't, I don't really think like, I don't really think killing and eating animals is wrong. I just don't do it, you know? And if you're going to yeah. do it that way, like, why not do it you know mm. yeah i've been a vegetarian uh since i was 11 and i also have the same predisposition like i don't think killing an animal in an animal is wrong i'm i'm much more uh offended by factory farming like if you're hunting i'm yeah. killing an animal that's been wild its entire life and then the last few minutes of his life kind of probably suck but it's had this great life or at least it's very free life the whole time and so I would yeah, almost yeah. say hunting might be the best way to kill your food. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's also such a funny, I mean, just to get sort of deeper about empathy and pain and all that. I mean, it's, it's a funny sort of thing as well, how much of the pain of the animal we actually should take on and how much we accept that pain and suffering is a part of life. And I don't know, there's, there's sort of, deep and challenging questions all around that space so yeah i'm still trying to come to the come to terms with uh why i'm vegetarian i i, I don't know i mean it's like why would i be vegetarian <laughs> when when death is a part of life but yeah. there's something about meat that is so disgusting to me and just feels wrong that i i just can't seem to do it yeah i'm the same i'm yeah. the same and honestly it occurred to me when i was three i was just like hey mom what's this what's this bacon made of again she was like, it's made of a pig. I'm like, you mean like a pig pig? And she was like, yeah, a pig pig. I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. That was it. You know, I, I ultimately, I think I'm just, you know, people talk about the big five personality spectrum or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think I'm probably just highish on neuroses and I don't know, like it probably there's like a certain combo or something that makes me like a little hypersensitive. And I suspect that, um, and it's like, it's a double-edged thing, you know, it's like a sort of a power and a hindrance as well, depending on how you use it. So I just suspect that that's tied up with my vegetarianism, you know, like it just, shit makes me sad, you know? Are you empathetic? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot. And I mean, I don't even mean necessarily mean in like, a, like, you know, I'm really cool because I, I care about people's feelings. It's just... I think I just feel people's feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Something. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, you know, like, 
Yeah, zoom. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I um, I wouldn't describe myself as super high in empathy, but I've found a few times fairly recently that I'll feel something and then I'll be like, oh, I don't think this is necessarily my feeling. It's actually like this person's feeling that I'm kind of taking on in a way. Yeah. But I, I don't think I was able to distinguish beforehand what the difference was necessarily. Yeah, that's, that's, that's intense. Mm. So I want to talk more about the IDW. What do you think is, um, I mean, it's quite the cultural phenomenon. Why oh, is it so gripping for us? Like, I think about my journey into it, and I, I suspect my journey's probably quite a few people's journey. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Or, or just vaguely similar is, you know, I, I have a, a great hunger for knowledge, truth, reality, whatever you want to call it. You know, I don't want to make the impulse sound too good, but I'm pretty sure like I'm, you know, just voracious for it. And I just relentlessly ask questions and I just want to know how shit works. And I want, I think I want, I want to be able to talk about it with people as openly as possible. It's just this hunger. And I actually think it's, I actually think it's a, a, an evolved characteristic where, um, and I don't think it's too much of a radical thing to say is that as humans, one of our, you know, we're, we're pattern recognized. Did I say that before? We're, we're unbelievably good at pattern recognition. I think Lex even had someone on his podcast recently who was talking about the human brain and how it really is just, constantly modeling the nature of reality and refining those models. And that's, that makes just so much sense to me. And if you go all the way back to Plato, who's, you know, my hero, um, one of two or three, you know, he's got the whole idea of the, the form, the platonic form. And that's, that's just such a beautiful thing because he's recognizing that what the human brain is doing is, is modeling patterns. And he says the philosopher is the one who grasps the forms. Um, and so that stuff resonates really heavily with me. And so my sense is that um, when we're talking to people openly, you know, we, we can learn the patterns of reality by experiencing reality, you know, by being scientists and playing around with things. But we also learn it um, by talking and communicating. And we're drawing and we're sort of, you know, we're, we're refining our model by, by discussing it on a meta level with other people. And that is such a wonderful, beautiful and necessary thing. And so, so when I went through uni, like I was just so hungry for all of this stuff and I'm reading and reading and reading and I'm like going into my teacher's office. I'm like, Hey, can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? And I go in, I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And within about five minutes, they just shut me down and they're just like, and they get that weird triggered look and they're just like, you know, I've had so many like just miserable experiences when I was a pathetic 20 something and lacked like the strength of character I have now, which I discovered about three weeks ago. <laughs> no, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the short of it is that for like 10, 12 years, I've been in a university environment where I had to hold my tongue and it was just this vast, immense pain to me. And that whenever I tried to speak, they find ways to shut you down. And um, it was always because you weren't, you know, using the call and response and you weren't playing the games of the system. And, you know, and so my sense as I went through the uni system was just, it was just a staggeringly corrupt place. I'm talking arts and social sciences here. 
Not everyone, yeah. not entirely. Not but it was just department that's having the issue. I don't think huh? I don't Sorry? think the physics department having this issue. Not yet. Yeah. But um but, but they've got their own problems with you know string theory and, and possibly other aspects. I mean, I don't know much, but they've potentially got their own problems. But um, so you go through this. I even wrote my PhD about this in my way. I was actually using my my experiences of the university. It was almost like my live case study for developing my own sort of model of knowledge and ethics, which I built through my PhD thesis. But I really just thought I was kind of alone. And I thought, yeah, this is just my own crazy battle and my own, my own, my only comrades, <laughs> to use a communist word, are, are philosophers and writers from the past who don't even exist anymore. Like um, you know, Nietzsche or Plato or Rousseau or Tolstoy, Joseph Conrad, um, a bunch of others. Or maybe, you know, there are some around today, like the science fiction writer Neil Stevenson, um, who interestingly, this was a real interesting moment for me. I always thought Neil Stevenson was IDW. And even like 20 years ago, I was like, this Neil Stevenson guy fucking gets it. And then suddenly, like a month ago, there he is on the Lex Friedman podcast. And I'm wow. like, Haha, bingo. What was that? I, I remember you saying something about Nietzsche and uh, what he thought of academics. Yeah, but hang on, i got to finish the previous oh, yeah, point. Yeah, I'm, try I'm trying to hold it together. Yeah. So the point is, anyway, you go through these experiences and then suddenly, probably around 2015 or 16, like I was reasonably late to the IDW thing. You know, some of, some of my students who obviously recognised who I was more than I knew myself, they're like, they're like, hey, man, you should listen to such and such. I, I think you're kind of similar. I'm like, no, nah, fuck off. Dude, no, no, you should listen to such and such. And then after a year or two, you actually start listening and you're like, my God, these people are having the same experiences. They've got the same kind of hunger for knowledge and questioning and open discussion and, frankly, love of humour, which was also uh, absolutely verboten in the university. And, uh, and then you suddenly realise these people are, in their own way, have had the same kind of struggles and battles, and they and they and they've come to reasonably sort of similar perspectives about it. And it's really strange. Suddenly, you go, "Fuck!" There's a sort of a community that's where you know, we're, we're we're not, you know, like we're not right wing nuts or anything like that. Frankly, I've I've voted for left wing parties for the last twenty years, you know. <laughs> and so it's 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 amazing to actually then find these group of people. And, uh, and, and that's kind of the attraction. And so um, it then helps you kind of refine your own thoughts. And, but then part of the problem is the actual, you then get radicalized into it because you're like, oh, my people, my people. And then before you know it, you're then othering. But anyway, that's another, that's the story we were talking about before. But yeah, I mean, that's my journey. And so then in people like, you know, Peterson getting all like nuts about the postmodern Marxist, it's like, you know, he's broadly correct. What he, he, I don't think he always explains himself so well on that point, but the thing is, is that the, the, the woke problem is a kind of postmodern Marxism. I mean, Marxist, Marxism is about collectivism. It sort of contains the sort of Hegelian idea that, the, that only the lowest is the best. And one of the really annoying things is it contains, certainly in like Leninism, it contains this idea that there needs to be an intellectual vanguard, a bunch of smarty pants that tell everyone else what to do. And then you toss in postmodernism, which basically says there is no truth. Truth, truth is only determined by the group, yeah. which then basically means if, there, if there's an intellectual group, as long as we all agree with each other, we don't really need evidence. So you've got 
collectivism. The lowest is the best. Um, a bunch of intellectuals who get to tell everyone else what to do and no truth. That's postmodern Marxism, basically. And we've got the completely broken university system and mainstream media. So it's like Peterson's kind of right about that. I don't, I don't always think he, I think he gets too worked up and doesn't always articulate himself. But so it's, so it's like really exciting to see him batting on about that. And, you know, they're, they're all roughly in that space. So, you know, anyway, I think, I think that was it. I think that's, I think that's, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, I was obsessed with Peterson for a few years there. He was, uh, I still really like him, although I think he's kind of, I think he's, his shadow is taking over in a way that I, 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 I'm not enjoying right now, um, or I'm not agreeing with him with or something. There, there's something like, he, he interviewed this, the North Korean defector, did you see her? Yeah, what did you think about that? Well, she uh, apparently there were some there were some articles about how she was actually so she she described herself as being like lowest to below in North Korea, like starving all the time, barely had enough food, you know, terrible, terrible life. And then she was on this South Korean show, like maybe a decade earlier, this reality TV show describing her life as being from the very upper echelons of North Korea. And her mother was there. Oh. And they, and so, like, I, it seems, her, her claims seem incredibly dubious. Um, and other people, uh -oh. yeah, it just seems, and I, I, I just think about Peterson, like, I, I, I owe so much to him, but, like, at the same time, I feel like he is, she had this whole, oh, and no, North Korea, and now we're, we're becoming just like North Korea, like the communists and the liberals and all that. She would, like, have these talking points that seem just completely geared towards, getting that right wing money, like just selling her book to all the right wing oh. people who, who agreed with it and towed that party line. And it just seems like Peterson is kind of falling into that trap. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree with that. I think he's, I think he's playing to the right way too much. And he's, yeah, he's not, you know, not dialectical enough, not open enough. And I mean, he's at his best when he's magnanimous and gives, gives credit to the, gives credit to the left wing positions. Like he's at his best when he says, um, that, that the left, when it's really functioning at its best, is speaking truth to power and is standing up for the downtrodden and all of that. Um, so, yeah, and sometimes he is in that space. But, yeah, not... I don't know. I've listened to a few of his podcasts over the last six months. But, yeah, my, I was... Yeah, I feel like he's sliding too far that way. But, hey, fun fact, right? Just to... Uh, um, I put in a little section of that Peterson and... Um, what's her name? Yonimi Park, something like that. Yeah. I put in a little section of that into my lecture when it all went wrong. So maybe that's part of the problem. Ah, that'd be it. That's, yeah, that's the issue. I, I put in the bit where she was talking about her experiences at university. Oh, okay. Because that resonated with me. Um, and so I was struggling to find evidence for what I was talking about. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. But yeah, now I really regret that. Well, um, <laughs> there were other accusations as well that that article was sponsored by China. And I haven't actually fact-checked. I haven't gone through and watched the, the South Korean oh, uh, reality TV show. And so, you know, you can go and do that and, and look at it yourself. But uh, other people online apparently had. I, I don't think it's that hard to fact-check. I just haven't done it. Um, it. I mean, it's hard to know as well. Like, I mean, this is the funny thing with the IDW is that, I mean... And this happens with everything, really. And I, this is this is kind of like the system I 
tried to formalize in my PhD. And actually, hopefully I'll get around to when I get to do my book of essays, which will hopefully be the book I get to do after I do the IDW book. Um, it's probably been 10 or 12 years in the making, but I mean, it's a pretty straightforward point, but so much, so much of the problems of the world is things that start out in a good place and then somehow slip into the bad place and get corrupted. And so, I mean, the IDW is kind of the same. I mean, good stuff, a lot of good arguments, a lot of good ideas, and you never quite know when suddenly now, you know, some great vested interest is aware of the, uh, the cultural power of the IDW and now they're using it for their own ends. And yeah, how do you know? How do you know when the people themselves haven't gone to a dark place, looked into the abyss and, you know, the abyss looks into them or, yeah, or when somehow it's co-opted? So yeah, that, yeah. It's, it's tricky. I, I did certainly find myself, um, Peterson is quite anti, anti radicalization or, or so I, I found myself being ideolog ide ideologically possessed by Peterson while also fully being aware that I was ideologically possessed. And I would kind of, this is back in maybe 2017 or something, but I would be like, okay, what do I disagree with him about? And I think that's <laughs> like, uh, you, you have to, I don't think we all, anyone should agree with anyone 100% on everything. That's crazy. Oh, it's good to ask that. What do I disagree with him about? I mean, but yeah, the, I mean, these are the, these are the anti-radicalization questions we have to ask ourselves all the time, you know, so we don't get radicalized. It reminds me as well as of like a, a teaching technique because um, about the, the whole sort of radicalization thing you were asking before. Um, yeah, one thing I often, one thing I really, really try to do is if I have a student I really disagree with, I try to be really nice to them. That's like a conscious thing I do. Yeah. It's like, because I know that, I, I know back when I was a student and, and so many of the teachers disagreed with me and really smashed me. I'm like, God, what's the one thing I can do, you know? Even if I can't see into my own soul and, you know, even if I'm twisted, I can at least consciously try to be really nice to them. And not, like, I don't mean like overly nice, but sort of generous and just listen, help them, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, that's a digression. It just made me think no, of that. That's, that's a fantastic point because I think, you know, a lot of people that I, I meet and I can't read someone's mind. And so this is, I'm kind of mind reading here in, in my own sense, but like I meet people who are hardcore feminists and actually, you know, they've, when you, when you get into their backstory, they've grown up with terrible men throughout their lives, you know, and, and maybe they're a hardcore feminist because there was not a single good man in their entire lives. And so it's like, if you disagree with someone and you present yourself as a great, uh, as a good person, as a magnanimous person to them, then, you know, they, mm. they are not necessarily using logic when they are attacking you. And, and so mm. you don't always need to appeal to their logical sense because it might be something yeah, yeah, yeah. that's going on. There's, there's levels, 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 levels. I mean, we're interacting on so many levels, but I don't know. I mean, the feminism thing's interesting too. Cause I mean, I mean, let's be clear men are pretty terrible a lot of the time so i mean it's women are too it's just i, I yeah, guess men are, men are a specific type of terrible that is yeah, I mean, much yeah. More. <laughs> well it moves into the physical realm a bit more which i mean like psychological problems are psychological problems and maybe they're the same and you know heck i mean i've had any number of bad psychological what would I call it? Abuse or not even abuse, man, that's too hard a word, but you know, injustices from women, I would say, but yeah, 
men still, I mean, you know, physical violence is still, it, it, it's, it's almost on a whole nother level, really. Yeah, and, I mean, and I, I should be more charitable. Like, I'm being charitable to the side right now of men are worse than women, but it's which is kind of a weird thing to do. But men probably are more often than not like um, disagreeable types. Like they they probably are yeah. a lot more often like just meaner or whatever. Women women seem to be nicer on the whole, I suppose. So it's like that that kind of hardcore mm-hmm. feminist idea does have it is rooted in reality. It's just. I started, I, my, my political awakening in my early 20s was actually as a hardcore feminist, Thanks. strangely. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, I looked into my soul and saw a lot of dark things about what it meant to be a man, and I needed to go on a journey. And so I actually went through some pretty radical feminist stuff. But then, you know, I sort of, as the years rolled on, I realised you could only change so much about people and you could only push so far. And I don't know, it's a long and difficult story to talk about really. And I probably swung back to the other way a little. And so, you know, it's this, I feel like I'm in a good place now. I feel like I can really go. Yeah. Men suck quite a bit. Like, you know, let's call it 70, 30 men, women, men suck 70 women suck 30 as a population, Yeah. as a population. You know, I can call that and say that at peace, you know, and then I can explore the depths of it, you know, men, you know, murderers, rapists, you know, <laughs> domestic abusers, but at the same time, you know, firefighters, <laughs> firefighters, providers, yeah. you know, all the stuff that Peterson bats on about, you know, competence, you know, we're, we're the ones fixing the plumbing, you know, stuff but- like that. When you said men are worse than women, originally I noticed that I did immediately go, well, women are bad too. Like I was kind yeah. of, I don't know if it was it, triggered, but it was it, like yes. an immediate response. Uh, and I wasn't yeah, it's funny, isn't it? No, I know. But like, as I say, like I've, I, I swung way that way. Then I think, I think with the IDW, I was, I could just sense I was in a, even though I'm like, like I know I'm really sympathetic to that position because that was my, political awakening, I know I kind of swung back into the man camp a bit too hard in recent years, but just like, it's, you know, like, as I say, with the re-embracing and be like, you know, just thinking, you know what, actually, I don't mind being physical and competitive. Like, I, 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 I'm, I'm cool with that now, you know? I don't mind uh, being a bit wild and intense and, and assertive, like, fine, you know? But yeah, then I got to, then you got to you swing a bit that way, and then you got to swing back a little there, so... Yeah, I um, I did comedy in uh, in when I was when I was in uni, uh, and I did a lot more comedy than I did uni. And you mean you was, were the comedian? Yeah, I did. I stand up, stand up for a few years. Are oh, you legend? Yeah. Wow, that's was, so cool. That's that's like the highest form. I mean, that's still the undiscovered country for me. Like my whole head, my head's like, dude, just throw it all in and do stand up comedy. And I'm like, no, not yet. Yeah. Say more. Tell me about it. Oh, it's great. It's like a, the lifestyle is like a reverse lifestyle because you're out all night and then you're kind of, you know, you're, you're with all these hooligans, like not hooligans, but these people who are kind of have this reverse lifestyle as well. And, <laughs> and it's, it's like the human brain functions differently at night. I don't know what it is, but we're not supposed to be up that night at, at that late. And so when, when you do that, it's kind of just these, these different people and open mics are crazy. Like, there are some oh. fucking whack jobs. Like you just meet the craziest people, and it's so exciting. I mean, you never really know what you're gonna get. 
Um, but but that's, and, that's a point worth pausing on, frankly. Like, like, like the embracing of insanity and whack jobs is such an important part of life. And if you want to talk about what's so triggering about the woke culture, it's like, fuck's sake, man, I love eccentricity so much and I love unrestrained whack jobs, you know? I want more, more, more. Frankly, I want to be one all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, and yeah, that, that stuff is just so attractive. I love it. I, I love it. It's My friend was asking me why I like that show Tiger King, and I was like, what's not to like? There's, there's oh, tigers Tiger King. guns and meth. I mean, what what would you not like about that show? It's the, the wackiest shit possible. Um, but, uh yeah, and then setup as well was good because you learn how to fail and be embarrassed and, and ashamed and then get up the next day or or to the next show. And so that was really important for me in, in terms of like, just keep going, you know. You you really yeah. just embarrass yourself in front of 50 people or whatever. Yeah, Bill Burr, Bill Burr talks about that all the time. And man, you know, I mean, <laughs> Bill Burr is obviously one of the comedians of the IDW, you, yeah. know, him, you know, him and obviously you know, Chappelle and the others, but he often talks about that, you know, that you get up and you just, you just fail, you suck, you die again and again and again. And I, I love that. I mean, honestly, it's such a key lesson in life, right? And that just, just to, to embrace failure, to embrace risk and failure. And that, I mean, that's another critique of sort of woke or left society. And this is, this is one of the bits of the right, which is like ease, and it shouldn't be the right, but it is one of the just the huge selling points is just for fuck's sake, just, just fail, you know? And so many, I mean, cause I, I mean, I've spent so, so much time teaching and I spent years teaching this course for people who wanted to get into university, which was really eye opening. They're very different from undergraduate students who just did well in school and then they roll into uni. These are people who in their heads should have gone to uni, but failed and didn't get in. And so many of them would start this course and like every time at least half of them would drop out and you could tell all of them just had this fucked up self-doubt failure complexes yeah. and it was really kind of tragic and I just I, and I learned so much about humanity by teaching this course because I realized in the end I'd give them so this sort of speech to them and say guys like life is it's like it's not as hard as you think a lot of this stuff I'd say don't count yourself out. Let us count you out. Let me count you out. And you will be surprised. You'll be surprised. You actually don't know where my threshold is. You don't know where this course's threshold is. Because the reality was the fucking course was a walk in the park. Yeah. And pretty much 99 out of 100 people passed and everyone got into uni. You couldn't really tell them that. But half of them, brilliant people, would just kind of start getting emotions and shit and, and like getting self-doubt and drop out. And it's like, you know, and so the speech ended up becoming just fucking try. It's like try, fail, it doesn't matter, you know? And, it, and so it's just such a sort of fundamental just life lesson, value in life, which as you're talking about, stand-up comedy, what a, what a, brilliant, a brilliant way to learn that lesson. I think school, I, I certainly had that, whatever complex that was, I, yeah, I've, I really f didn't do well in school for most of my career and university too. It was, I shouldn't have probably gone to university, but um, there, <laughs> there is this kind of failure complex of, 
uh, I think in school, like there's, you're, you're kind of forced to sit there for six hours a day. This is my interpretation of it. And just sit down and, and work and do things that you don't want to do. And it's kind of a compliance thing, I think. I think school actually selects for, not only does it select for intelligence and, and, and conscientiousness, but also compliance. Like how Mostly, willing yeah. are you to do something that you definitely don't want to do? And yeah, yeah, it, yeah um, I, I, I get pretty, you just triggered me about school, by the way. Yeah. But I'm at peace with getting triggered about school. What do you trigger? Yeah. What, what specifically has triggered you? Well, you know, as you know, like I've, I've got like a 12 year old kid and I'm really keen on like homeschooling him in some form because I'm just so over school. Mm. As you say, just sitting there for six hours doing these tasks, which is sort of like, let's, I mean, you know, there's this sort of circle for what education should be, you know, namely getting educated. And then there's like a circle of what happens in school. I'm doing a Venn diagram here. Yeah, yeah. And there's about like a, there's yeah. about a 20% overlap maybe where school actually does what it's meant to. Yeah. And the other 80% is just, and I'm being generous there. Let's call it 10%. Yeah. Um, and the honest, the other 90% is just like, wh why should so much school be about like eager, open-minded students having to fight pitched battles with authority figures? Why? Why is that where the energy goes? Yeah. Oh like God. with me, like because so so I teach my kid right, and it's not it's not hard because I love parenting and I love hanging out with my children, and it's great. You're on a car trip. You're like, all right, let's do some Pythagoras. You know, let's let's talk triangles, motherfucker, and um and he and he just hoovers it up, and it's like you know, and 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 I get him to do maths problems and stuff, and we don't even work that hard on it and he's four or five years ahead. And it's not even like, I'm not even saying he's a genius or something. It's just, Pretty it's smart. just, there's just such quicker ways of getting to the goal and such better ways of spending your time rather than this weird, as you say, compliance thing where it's fucking pitched battles with authority figures while you do repetitive tasks, which barely even help you. Yeah. You know? absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're, you're you can't set your own agenda. Yeah. Yeah, it can't set your own agenda. That's a big one. But like the thing is, like, is like, oh well, your kid is really smart. And one of the issues that I think is that school might cater to school also has to cater to the kids who are on the opposite end of the standard deviation as, as your your kid. And so like mm. he has to be in the same kind of curriculum as someone who is much less intelligent, unfortunately, than he is. And you kind of well, just have to yeah. like why would it I don't know, like, it's just, it's just crazy to me that all year nine students learn the same thing. And then it takes a year to learn. Yeah, those I know, things. I know. Like, and, and look, look, I'm, look, it shouldn't, I, 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 like, and maybe there's no better way of doing it on mass. And like, we've got these crazy things called nation states and we've sort of have, or at least states within nation states and we have centralized education systems. And honestly, that's a lot better than whatever we had before. Um, but if there's a possibility to tailor education and make it more individual and okay, maybe that's a luxury, whatever. And, you know, frankly, maybe I am privileged and maybe my kid is privileged, but if there's a possibility to tailor education, um, wherever possible, you know, that should happen. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, look, hey, this is also why I'm probably 
a fair bit on the left spectrum is why the hell as a society wouldn't we be pumping so much more money into education, having better, enlightened, you know, passionate teachers, look at you frowning a bit, um, who can, um, you know, who can, who can actually sort of tailor education a bit more, smaller groups, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm that, that's got to be an option. That's going to pay off. Yeah. Uh, I'm frowning because I did some research years ago in America, and America actually spends two times as much money on students as any other country. And for some reason, it doesn't fucking work. Like, I don't, I mean, people say, like, why don't we spend more go. money on the problem? And to okay. me, it's, kind it's of, not the money. Great. Yeah, it's not the money. We're blowing the money. Like, it is the money, but we're, I can like, see. It's, it's just like, it's going into the wind. Somehow people are taking the money and then just like fucking around. They're just fucking up. I don't know what they're doing. But we need better leaders then. We need yeah, better people who yeah. are actually pulling the strings and, you know, not, not just dumbass people who have, honestly, who have studied education and pedagogy at yeah. university. Like, oh, my God, you know, like, kill me, kill me, yeah. pedagogy. It's like, it, it's, like, it's like not that hard, you know. Like, you, you, need people who, you need people who are interested and, you know, who love what they're doing and who can connect with people. And it's almost more a dispositional thing than even a, something that's taught but and so if you had good leaders then it's like this is another reason why the private sector is so often better is that at least you get people in positions of power who can like sort of select a lot more based on kind of gut instinct and just go oh you've been doing a really good job you should get promoted whereas you know like you move into sort of public sector things and the quality of your work is irrelevant this is how life is at uni the quality of your work's irrelevant. It's all just sort of quantitative outputs. And, um, and so when you have a system like that, you're not selecting for good people. Um, and so, yeah, so I don't know. It's almost like you need an education system which takes the sort of selective pressures from, from the right or the corporate world, but combines them with the social conscience of the left. But, you know, how the fuck are we ever going to swing that, you know? Yeah, well, I, I have this... I've been thinking along the same lines as you, uh, but not just in the education system and the government. Like right now, the government has no incentive. An individual government body has no incentive to strip down costs to, to, to make less money. So instead of instead of being like, oh, we have an extra $100,000 this year, why don't we you know, save it up or like give it back to the government? No, they, they say, no, let's spend it on like furniture. Let's just buy some useless shit because we need to have this budget. and it's incredible. Like a business will 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 try to get rid of all unnecessary costs in, in an an ideal business, right? And then on top yeah, of yeah. that, um, politicians you fire them after two or four years. I mean, if a CEO isn't doing his job, you fire him immediately. Hopefully, uh, it's it's just a very yeah. It's a I think the whole government yeah. I love that side. I I got a friend who's a consultant and he works with like like uh, disability in the public sector. And I am, I am so jealous of him. He works like, you know, he works like eight hours a week and all of his anecdotes are like that. It's like, yeah, okay, we've got, we've got 6 million to spend before July 31. Uh, can you do a project for us? And he's like, I'm like, dude, what do you charge? He's like, oh, you know, 1,500, 2,000 a day. And I'm just like, oh my God, what, what, why isn't that my life? I've got so much to contribute to society. I've got books to write. I've got so much to give. And all I do is just work in my fucking uni job, you know, 60 hours a week, you know, and there's my friend just, you know, sucking in the free government money, exactly how you're talking. 
So yeah, I I hear it. It pains me. Like you've gotten, you're quite a prolific human being, though. I mean, I'm not at all. I'm not at all. I'm I'm way too old, and I've done. I haven't done nearly enough. Like, it's it's it pains me immensely. Yeah, I feel the same, and I'm I'm much younger. It's always that trap of, of feeling like you're too old. Um, I know, I know. You can't. I mean, you can't worry too much. You just got to keep keep punching. Yeah. But um, yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. Don't waste your time. I I just I'm amazed by you. I I I wonder if it is the rigorous exercise that makes you so productive. I mean, you're saying that I'm you're not that productive. You're saying that, and I don't believe you. <laughs> like, I'm not saying you work eight hours a day or anything, but you've you've released like a bunch of music. You've written four books you know all these other things like you you raised two great children that's a huge one i mean you you've found time it to looks, be a father it looks, okay. it looks okay in hindsight but i tell you there's a lot of procrastination and time wasting along the way yeah. and there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of better projects that still need to be done much much better projects you know so i'm curious actually yeah, your uh, your job at university what is um what do you do when you teach about terrorism yeah, I know. Good question. <laughs> uh, look, honestly, because I'm a political philosopher, I don't really want to just roll out and like look at different terrorist groups and like I, I do a bit and like you know you don't really want to just do facts about it. You want to try to get into sort of deeper philosophical ideas of what of like say the relationship between terrorism and the state. You know, that's beautiful stuff. When you start thinking about Weber's idea that. Um, you know, that's sort of this classic point that's often made is that how do we define a state? Well, a state has a monopoly on violence. You probably have heard of that before. It's a really sort of beautiful way of describing the state. And it sort of sums up the rule of law and the role of police and all of that kind of thing. And a lot, a lot flows outwards from this concept of the state having a monopoly on violence. And then, you know, so what, so what's terrorism? What, what's really going on there? Why do, why does terrorism offend the state so much? And it really does, because it's not, it's not a big threat in the scheme of things. McDonald's is a big threat in the scheme of things. Yeah. Coca-Cola, basically heart disease, road traffic accidents, malaria. You know, there's so many bigger threats. But terrorism looms large, and people don't even quite know why, but it's because terrorism says to the state, you do not have a monopoly on violence. You know, we use violence to communicate our political visions. And um, so it's like that kind of stuff excites me to talk about. So you can kind of go into those sorts of depths. So that's, that's one thing you can sort of talk about with terrorism. And other things that are very interesting are looking at different, um, what you might call waves or strains of terrorism. Like there's a sort of, uh, there's an idea this guy, uh, Rappaport, popularized that there's a number of waves of terrorism, like the anarchist wave in the late 19th century, where it really began. Um, and then and the, um, the anti-colonial wave, the new left wave, Islamic terrorism, and possibly now we're in a sort of right-wing space. And it's very interesting looking at the different flavors of terrorism and looking at their techniques and also Asking tough questions like, um, one question I really like to ask of my students is, well, can terrorism ever be justified? And when you're looking at something like anti-colonial terrorism, you know, there's a degree of reasonableness in it. 
you know, it's like colonization. Like, really, you shouldn't do it. Let's be clear. You shouldn't do it. Um, and if the colonizers aren't getting out, you know, it kind of makes, it starts to move into this space. Whereas, I mean, right-wing terrorism is something else entirely. It doesn't really make sense. I mean, there's almost no justification for, I struggle to see one for terrorism based on things like, you know, race, obviously. But then when you start slipping into concerns about governments, you start to think, well, you know, there's almost a grain of truth in there. And so it's very interesting looking at different types of terrorism and uh, asking those really tough questions of, um, well, is terrorism, and often the way we use the word terror is we use it to mean it is beyond the pale. It is utterly unacceptable. That's certainly the way it was used in the 2000s post-September 11. If you're a terrorist, you are utterly other. But to then sort of take that and sort of bring it from the other into the self space and start playing around with it, that's really interesting. Is I don't know, one, one last, sorry. Yeah. go, you go. I okay, one last interesting thing as well. Continue. One last interesting thing is even just looking at things like we're talking about gender, male versus female terrorists. You know, I've so never there's a lot. Of I do want, female terrorists in my life. Yeah, but you know, there are female suicide bombers. Um, yeah. There's a few. There's a few sort of almost leaders in ISIS. Um, in the in the new left terrorist wave, um, Bader Meinhof. There were female leaders. Um, what's it called? Japanese. What the hell are they called? Anyway, Red, Red Dawn. I, I should know because I teach it, but I've, it's, I've forgotten it. You know, there, there are female leaders and you go back to like the, the Russian sort of terrorism um, in the 19th century, there were female leaders. So it's interesting when terrorism swings more left, you see more female leaders. So there's lots of, um, there's, it's sort of interesting. There's lots of interesting things there to be explored as well. So, you know, anyway, they're the kind of things you talk about. I'm Sorry? fascinated that ISIS has female leaders. They, they don't, Scream! Uh, not exactly leaders, not exactly leaders, but they do they do they do play some prominent roles. But interestingly, often they play the role of then working with like the would be female terrorists or something, or or sort of cultural. You know, they're they're almost like the the, the religious cultural police that then work with the women as well. So it's complex. But again, there are there have been. Um, female suicide bombers. And it's interesting looking at their narrative. Is it ultimately like a failed, is it ultimately sort of a failure of their femininity? You know, they, let's say they've had a problem with shame in a marriage or something or, you know, and so they've lost their identity because, um, because they've sort of failed in their culture as a woman in some way. And so the only way to then cleanse themselves is to then become a, a suicide bomber. There's that kind of narrative. But then at the same time, does that take agency away from some women who maybe they genuinely believe that they're fighting for a good cause and they are martyring themselves for a higher good. So there's all of those sort of things that, that come into play. i got to tell you, 42 male virgins waiting for me in heaven doesn't sound very appealing. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, different narratives. Different, yeah. yeah, the women, I don't think the women would quite get promised the virgins. Okay, well, that's good. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I mean, look, honestly, to move into dangerous territory. I'm not entirely sure how much women are into polygamy, but men certainly are. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it's a selling point for men, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I've been wondering about the, the place of, of femininity versus masculinity in society, because um, 
To me, it's, it seems something like femininity is, is much more vague than masculinity in terms of definition. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you agree with this, but that masculinity is like, you know, I go out and build things. I fight against people, um, competitiveness, uh, you know, things like that. And, and femininity, I think my, my current idea is that femininity is some, somehow a, um, a connector. So like we connect, you know, if you think about, about like, I, I think about this, about what feminism has done against femininity in, in the, the recent century. And it's something like, well, women actually used to stay at home. We used to be stay-at-home wives. And a stay-at-home wife wasn't usually just sitting around drinking margaritas and doing nothing. She was probably out socializing with the other women. And that created a, a mm. quite a dense network, you could say, of, of its own female hierarchy. And if your husband was a Republican and the neighbor was a Democrat and you got along with her wife, you'd probably just have them over all the time for dinner. And I think there, there could have been a lot more cohesiveness because of that. And um, I think, and I think women are often the cultural leaders of society as well. Like women are often the ones who are vegetarians or vegans. I mean, obviously you're an exception, but I think first- Yeah, but I'm soft. Women, yeah. First it's the women though, just like in a nightclub, first the women come and then the men come. Like, you know, you do ladies night, oh, there's no shortage of the ladies night. Oh, yeah. But honestly, yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating topic. And as I, as I said right back at the start, my kind of philosophical awakening started not entirely, but largely in the gender space. So this, it, those sorts of issues never really ceased to be far from my thoughts. Uh, I didn't say that very efficiently, but yeah. Um, it, it's tough because, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I could talk about this for days. Um, but the, it's, yeah, the, the male identity, um, yeah, what, what are you? You're like a, like a sort of a, like a good, let's say, good soldier fighting within the system. Um, yeah, or you're, uh, yeah, you're out there on the land or something like that, making things, creating. Um, or you're, I was talking about this with another friend recently, or else you're sticking it to the system. You're the iconoclast breaking everything. But the thing is, th this is why I got into feminism as well, is it's kind of unfair because if you're a, if you're a, if you're a good man, not even a good man, I mean, if you play any of those roles, you get status. If you're normal as a man and you do it well, you get status. You know, if you're a sort of a good earthy sort of farm on the land hunter type, great, you get status. If, you are, if you're an iconoclast, you know, whatever that form that takes, like a rebel, a punk, you know, you get status. So often what men do, what men do in the world, it, it tends to be kind of healthful and that also feeds back on them and gives them status. But I think why we so often don't talk about femininity and why, in fact, we struggle to or almost can't is often there's like a, there's a reverse thing. I mean, sometimes the status you get from being a good woman actually comes from giving up power and doing stuff that's not in your interests. And so it's this sort of dark space of, um, you know, it's in some ways it's, I mean, I, it's not easier for men because, you know, men kill themselves and get all freaked out, but in a sort of, play your role, gain status sense, it's, it's a bit more pure. For me, it feels like women are often working at cross purposes a lot of the time. I mean, you gain a huge amount of status by being beautiful, vast amounts of status. And in some ways it's, it's really easy status because for a man, you often have to work really hard for a very long time to produce something to gain status. To be beautiful, 
you know, once you work out how to do it, it's it's very easy to gain status. But at the same time, it's injurious because beauty, I mean, is kind of eroticized submission in many ways. And so you then embrace that, you gain status by giving up status. And so for me, it's like, there's a lot of, and I mean, I'm only just scratching the surface here, but there's a lot of just really tough discussions, which society will not have about any of these things. So yeah, I like it's sort of fascinating. As you say, femininity is, is not well-defined. And what I, I mean, what I just said then is only just a tiny, you know, that's sort of the first thought that came to mind. There's just so much else to be said. That's yeah. And your, your looks fade as well. So your status fades over time. Although it, it there are in some cultures matriarchs and I, I, you know, in this culture now women can gain status through masculine pursuits. And in other cultures, I'm sure there were matriarchs that were very high status as well. Um, and so- It's interesting, even, anyway, just calling them masculine pursuits, because I mean, you know, making something of yourself in the world, it's traditionally been masculine, but it's, it's a pretty, I don't know, it's a pretty straightforward activity, really. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, like, I, I just don't know what else to call them. I, I'm not no, okay, saying yeah, that's sorry, a realm only for yeah. men. It's more, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah it's yeah. good to define Fair it. Fair enough. That's the university level defining something. Um, because sorry. you were, to, don't be sorry. Like if somebody were to listen to this and I said that they might, I have an assumption of what that word means to me, but that person doesn't. And so you saying that was really helpful. Um, okay. but like, uh, you could say external pursuits, perhaps like making money of, and, and like creating things, I guess. Um, but, uh, uh anyway, what, what you kind of reminded me of when you said, um, women's status often comes from kind of submission was this book that I read about a year ago called The Surrendered Wife, which is a very triggering title for a lot of people. Um, but it's, it's a pretty good book. It's about uh, how to be a good, like, wife, I guess, or, or a girlfriend. Oh. And, yeah. It's, oh, Jesus. Oh, what? That's trouble. It's, tr I, it is, it's a lot of trouble. It's, it's uh, sure to trigger a lot of people. But like, what I say when I, I, first of all, I barely recommend it to people. When I do recommend it to someone, it's because they absolutely want this sort of thing and they're looking for this sort of thing. And um, it's, it's the way I choose to live my life. I'm not saying anyone else should go and buy the book, right? It's, it's like everyone has their own relationship dynamics and I have my own opinion on, on what works. But like some of the advices there uh, was like, don't criticize your husband. And you know, I, I don't take it literally. Like, I think there's times when you should criticize, but oh my god. What it's what it said to me was like maybe I I thought about it myself and it was like maybe I'm criticizing way too fucking much. Like I can I can scale back the criticism 90% and we're still fine. And actually, and I guess the overall purpose of this book, the, the kind of overall idea was something like. Uh, the woman has, we have incredible power in terms of creating a culture at home. And so, you know, you have kids, you have a husband and either other relationships to lesbians, non-kids, whatever, but I'm just saying a husband and kids for this, for this topic. And while your husband is, um, he's out working, you probably are too, but somehow the feminine energy is kind of reflective. And so I've, I found after reading this book that whatever energy I project to Elliot, he'll kind of give back to me in a certain way. And yeah. if, if I am very supportive and loving and not critical when I don't need to be, 
then he actually feels better about himself and then more things get done anyway. Like, it seems yeah. like somehow the, the idea is kind of like, if, if you have a man and you're constantly demeaning him, well, you're the person who loves him the most. You're his closest person. And so his brain is saying, well, the person closest to me thinks I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> and, and actually that's, so that's hearing you not say the this. recipe for success. I mean, you know, you know, I'm coming out of a 20 year marriage that's just failed, right? I'm sorry. My bad. <laughs> no, no, I don't care. Like, I'm completely open. I, I, I hide very little. I, I don't really have a, I don't have much of a private public distinction. I mean, why bother, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, what you're talking about. Um, yeah. It's very interesting to me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. But look, a few things to say, right? Okay. Let's say, and I, I should draw a diagram here. All right. Let's see if this works. There's so much to say here. I'm not even sure I'll be able to pull it off, but um, That's you know, so much, so much of what we're talking about and IDW talks about is this exact chart, right? Let's see if we can see that. You got that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's the overlapping bell curves of population. So one of the deep questions is, um, as a population, are men and women somewhat different? You know, that's, that's one of the fundamental questions. If you're in the postmodern kind of world, the answer is no. The human mind is a blank slate and but society makes us what we are. MRIs that show gender differences in the brain structure. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. not real. They don't I, honestly, I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not on board with that. Yeah. yeah I, so, let's say, let's, so let's say, let's say that there, as a population, there is a difference, which means, you know, some women will not be like the women you're talking about, and some men will not be like the men you're talking about, but maybe, maybe a fair chunk will be. Then the next question is, if we have a certain inclination within us, let's call it natural, to what extent should we go with it and to what extent should we push against it? Now, so on a social level, we push against a lot of our instincts. Like, you know, I feel like killing people sometimes. And, you know, Partly you think, well, it'll be really cool when the apocalypse comes around and there isn't any law because then I can really go after my enemies. You know what I mean? You know, we all have these thoughts, right? But the rule of law means that uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't go around hurting people just because uh, the inclination comes to me. Um, and so then the question is, if we do have these inclinations as men and women, you know, how much, how much should we run with them? Um, how much should we push against them? I'm not sure, but th th these, are, these are important questions to explore. The other thing I wanted to say is um, if we are falling into these roles somewhat, which maybe is okay, and honestly, the older I get, the more at peace I come with this, I fought brutally hard against this. I was, I was on board with the social construction argument throughout much of my 20s before I got over it. Um, but the question then is, if the man is driving the ship a bit and he is delivering goods, that keep the family going and he's leading it in a good direction, um, then yeah, maybe lay off the criticism. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's the simple point, right? <laughs> it's like, if you have to work as a team, I mean, going out and going to work every day and dealing with, you know, fucked colleagues and just, just relentless deadlines and stress, it's really hard. It is, it is, it's exhausting. But if, if that's where the well-being of the family comes from, like, you know, you know, a bit of, a bit of kindness on the home front certainly helps. 
And I mean, cross, but yeah, as I said, men are men give me fucking pains in the ass. I mean, they come home and unload their problems on their wives and probably do it with violence as well. And so it's like, these are tough questions. And I'm not really giving answers here, but I'm sort of just responding to your point with sort of questions or hypotheticals. But um, I just want to make yeah. sure for anyone potentially listening, if you're, if you're, if he's unloading violence against you, you should get the fuck out. Like that's, this isn't absolutely. like a never divorce kind of I, no, ideology absolutely. that I'm, that I'm absolutely, yeah. <laughs> like, so, but I mean, yeah. these, 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 what we're talking about, I mean, what, why, why we struggle so much as a society with almost everything is so much of the time we're talking about 70, 30, 80, 20, 60, 40, you know? Like I say, I'm on board with men being 70% bad, you know, women being 30% bad. I think that's probably a pretty good summation. The trade-off is that perhaps the bad, that whatever drives the bad also leads to other goods. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of complexities. So it's like, when men swing too far into the bad realm, then the woman should criticize or indeed get the fuck out. The question is whether the man has swung too far into that realm or is just, you know, just struggling a bit or whatever, you know, just working, in which case, you know, cutting a bit of slack at home is a good thing. I don't know. It's difficult settings. There's, there's, no, there's no sort of easy path through it, but yeah. This is why it's hard to talk about. So you, you like it's hard to talk about. So yeah, you feel the inclination to make the disclaimer because you're sensing that so often these statements just fall into zeros and ones. Yeah. Um, but, but they just don't. Everything's just in this funny kind of gray area. And like I say, tied up with these questions of whether we actually have, you know, say two out of three of us fall roughly in the middle of certain biological inclinations, in which case it's maybe it's useful to recognize that and go with it, not fight it. But I don't know. Maybe we should fight it. I I, I don't know. Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, it's it's a tough one, and it's like I'm just saying what works for me in my relationship, and but mm. I, I kind of do extrapolate onto to to wider society in a way that, I mean, yeah, obviously I'm not going to hit everyone. Obviously, some people are exceptions, and like that's why you make your own decisions, right? That's why you don't listen to a podcast and make giant life affirming decisions that. Yeah, I mean, how similar are we? This is this is just another beautiful and deep question to explore. Is like, how similar are humans really? I mean, we don't really know, but in 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 many ways, I feel like we're more similar than different. Yeah, uh, but I don't. I mean, the, sort of these vast questions, which are so hard to even start to scratch the surface on. I mean, how much are we bunched towards the middle, and how much are we sort of flattened out? Um, we can sort of poke around at it with psychology experiments and all of that, but you know, it, it's so hard. How, how do you, how do you control for the, all the variables? How do you make everything hold still to try to make sense of it? It's, it's, uh, it's the work of philosophers and artists and writers and stuff as well. A lot of this stuff to try to make sense of. Philosophers didn't used to just be people who sat in universities and wrote things. They also used to be scientists and um, humanitarian humanity, like psychologists, I guess. They, they used to be a lot more than, and I wonder if, if philosophy back in the day was some somewhat more more practical or something. I mean, should should our philosophers just be sitting in universities and writing things? Is that is that where you really derive an understanding of humanity? 
No, I mean, of course not. It should be out there in the world. But, I mean, this is the academic's fantasy, you know, but this is getting back around to what's annoying about woke people is they, they're like, yeah, I'm a philosopher. I've done my all my years. I've got a PhD. I've thought about ethics. You know, my, my expertise has been recognised. Now everyone shut up and change and do it the way I say. You know, that is that sort of fantasy of philosopher interacting with the world playing out. So, but yeah, but getting back to the IDW, this is the excitement of the IDW. This is, this, this is, this is philosophers walking amongst us. That's, that's, that's the attraction of it is that it's people who have had a hunger for sort of existential type philosophy where people are talking about deep ideas but also how to live and, and, and all of that unfolding in, a, in, an un, in, a, in an environment that's just unrestrained or largely unrestrained. So that's, that's, the, that's the beauty of it. The, the, the remarkable phenomenon of YouTube in particular has allowed the philosophers to walk amongst us. So, yeah, I, that's exactly what should happen. And anyone can do it now, which is nice. It's a, we kind of have this unrestrained freedom to say whatever we want, essentially, on YouTube. I mean, you can't say anything. I guess if you're Alex Jones, you get banned, but um, it's just disconcerting. But <laughs> we're kind of in this level playing field for the first time ever. In, in which anyone with a phone can just, in, everyone has internet access. I mean, there's no like, essentially anyone with the internet has access to Harvard education. Like there's really no excuse anymore. I, uh, there are excuses, but. Yeah, I mean, I, it's still I, hard. I mean, you know, yeah. it's still, I mean, you've still got to be pretty enterprising and entrepreneurial and lucky. I, I was thinking about America the other day. Um, I was talking to my friend about it and I, I said, if you're intelligent and hardworking, you can get anywhere. But actually, it's it's something USA. like in, in USA. USA. It's true, and and in the USA, people who um who who don't have the privilege of being intelligent are don't have it as good. And and I said intelligent and hardworking, and then I thought, no, it's actually intelligent, hardworking, and free from trauma, or at least having dealt with trauma well enough. Um, because yeah, dealing with trauma, hey. Yeah. <laughs> that's the big one i think that holds a lot of people back oh yeah i mean geez i mean that's a whole epic discussion right there isn't it i mean that's that's what everyone's almost everyone's dealing with isn't it like uh how do you how do you take traumatic experiences and tell the right story about it so that you can actually uh get somewhere oh, by, the way, by the way which is also a lovely touch of the intellectual dark web is that um so much of the problems of the left is that it's always complaining about structures and the structure has to change the structure has to change and it's like yeah you know i'm on board with that sure the structure has to change to a degree but um you know what what the right offers or at least a different perspective is um well let's also try to change ourselves let's try to work on our narratives about trauma and you know do you change yourself or do you change the world well you know a bit of both so that's actually a great thing. I mean, you know, that's Peterson's great gift to the world, really. I mean, it seems like he's genuinely helped huge amounts of people tell good stories about their trauma or, or something or uh, make something of themselves in their lives. Um, yeah. Riffing on that one a little. It seems as if there are, I, this is kind of a divergence, but 
I've noticed with my partner Elliot, he's he's very meditative, and he comes he comes from sort of a West an Eastern kind of um, philosophy. Although he's not, he comes from a Western kind of world, but an Eastern philosophy. And I have a much more Western philosophy, so I really resonate with Peterson in a big way, and kind of other Western philosophers. But we we've met in the middle, and I do wonder whether Peterson is. Perhaps Peterson's Western mentality isn't right for everyone. Like, for instance, um, I wonder sometimes if journaling gets us to the same place as meditation does. Uh, hmm. But they're they're kind of just a, a two different ways of doing something. Um, and there's things like goal setting that Peterson talks about. And actually, some people like don't set goals at all. And what they do instead is they kind of just are very mindful in the moment and then they follow whatever they're interested in. And, and, and that I, I, I interviewed this. Sort of Taoism. 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 Yeah. 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 I, I interviewed I mean, Peterson is, Peterson is helping people survive in the system in which they find themselves. He's not, he's not, he's not, he's not a system transformation guy. Um, and, you know, in his better, in his better moments, he'll talk about that. Not enough. Not enough, but, you know, but then we watch him and recognize his flaws. He's helping people survive in the system they find themselves. And him and Brett Wein, uh, Weinstein had a, had, a good, um, had a good discussion about this, which I'm going to put in my book. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there are other paths, aren't there? Um, it's just it's such a tough question, of, yeah, whether you try to succeed and try to, try to survive or make something of yourself within a corrupt system or you try in some way to, I don't know, escape or transcend the system or solve your so, solve your problems through just some kind of utterly parallel approach, as you say, through some kind of Taoist, Taoist um, sort of philosophy. I mean, there are many paths. Peter, Peterson's worked for a bunch of people, but yeah, maybe, maybe, a more, maybe an East, Eastern path will, will also work for people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You still got to, the thing is, you just, in this crazy damn world, you still just got to earn money. <laughs> Alas, I mean, I don't know. I'm 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 so old now, though, you know. And like, the older you get, the more you just my head just goes, get money, escape, get money, escape. Just to be honest, just to be honest, like in my twenties, you try I tried to find the other way out, you know, through some kind of transcendence. But now, you know, I mean. You know, I bought that piece of land and I want to set up my ecotourism business with, you know, Quest Week and turn it into this glorious fantasy world for everyone to come and hang out whilst also providing me with a decent income. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's, that's, you know, that's the thing. But, that's you know, I, I, I still think make something of myself, get money, get out, <laughs> then, 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 then be meditative. I mean, like, I, you know, guilty. Guilty is charged, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, it's it's i don't blame you at all um i i feel the same i, I <laughs> that's that's how i met jamie though i um i i was handed a a letter with a with a wax seal on it and i pulled out a um an old-timey type of leather a letter is worn and kind of ripped a little bit and it had handwritten yeah. was in i've got to run around here somewhere i've got one around great. here somewhere it was an invitation to a valiant quest 
And so we showed up having no other information or have, having contacted nobody else and four hours west of us in the middle of nowhere in Australia. And we got to this beautiful property that Jamie owns. And it was like, a, we, we went on a quest. It was like live action Dungeons and Dragons kind of without the, the dice. Yeah. And, yeah. And I want to really stress, we're not talking, we're not talking laughing here, you know? It's not, it's not about, it's not about the costumes. It's about, it's, it's, it's an inside out escape room, you know, it's, uh, yeah, like it's an outdoor more, escape room. Yeah. yeah. It's far more about the adventure and the ordeal than it is about, um, you know, dressing up. Yeah. You, uh, you go through this beautiful bushland and you look for treasure and there's, um, puzzles and, and clues puzzles. and riddles. Yeah. Clues and riddles. And you talk to different actors and they, uh, there's a troll um, who's who's immortal, but all of his friends have died, and he's very sad about it. And uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, Is this making sense to anyone out there? I think I think the coolest thing, my what I could imagine this being is like a new type of uh, competition, like a new type of tough mutter or something. Because because yeah. place yeah, 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 yeah. has has really great access to like all these hills and stuff I could see because you know what you know what's about the thing about Tough Mudder no the thing about like ultra marathons like those super hardcore activities are that um it's like super long distance but you could do kind of shorter distance type of people uh maybe not I mean it's it's multiple days so it would just end up being a marathon thing anyway but anyway I could just see you getting like super athletes who also want to use their brain and then yeah. they'd be like running all over strategizing and then figuring out all these puzzles. I mean, it's, it was no, no, but that's the, that's the deal. I mean, but, you know, thinking about the whole IDW ethos and, and the physical and the ordeal, I mean, gamifying that yeah. is, and, and, then, and then mixing in art and music. So you have this really rich experience. I mean, yeah, I mean, what I, I mean, I, what I really do have in mind is creating a new form of art. And I mean, like, you know, th these are my lofty ideals, but, you know, it's so fascinating looking at the history of art, or, you know, the transformation in painting from sort of, you know, realistic painting and then through, you know, through Impressionism and then the move into, you know, the, gradu the gradual movement into abstraction and then move into conceptual art. And then it's a bit like since about 1970 or 80, it's a bit like, well, where the fuck are we now, you know? It's got a bit of a sense that, you know, it's come up against the wall a bit and going to art galleries is sort of painful much of the time. Yeah. And, you know, classical music went a similar sort of way. And, but, you know, there's, there's room for like serious innovation in what, what we consider to be art. And for me, it's actually in the synthesis of so much of what we like. So it is bringing together music and theater and installation and the physical and the ordeal and uh, and the game and you know and and crafting a um, crafting a really substantial experience yeah that's uh, and that's 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 a new place to move art into is is my sense you've yeah. already created a new form of art i've never seen anything like this like this yeah art. but i haven't done it well yet the trick look We've rolled two iterations of it. I'm going to roll the third one, you know, as in a few months' time. I suspect it's not going to be until the fifth or sixth iteration, and hopefully I can get that far where it really starts to click. 
I mean, I'm testing the market and refining my product and I have to set up various infrastructure on my land, which is the very mundane type thing, you know, toilets. And I have to find out ways to, you know, clear over, clear, clear uh, overgrown, you know, bushland and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, try to juggle all that with my insane day job. Uh, but yeah, hopefully, you know, hopefully on the fourth or fifth iteration, um, and when it can actually be opened up to um, randoms from the public and who, and if they actually have a good time and actually give me money, you know, you know, give me money, have a good time, tell friends, want to come back, yeah. you know, like that, then, then you, you know, cause I, I do like art. I mean, this is what, what's great about popular music and, you know, popular culture and Netflix and all that is like, People should really want to be involved in art. And increasingly, you know, the high art realm, it's like it's a pain in the ass. You go to galleries and you want to be out of there in half an hour. Like it really hurts. Yeah. It's really boring. And so, you know, I, I, people actually liking art and wanting to, give you, wanting to give you money for it and come back and tell everyone. I mean, that basic sort of model of that basic model of business is very attractive to me. It's again, it comes back around to failure and the stand-up thing you were talking about. Oh, I mean, if anyone knows how to run a marathon, it's you. It's, it's just a marathon. It's not a sprint. You just keep going, you know? Keep going. Yeah. And have, have good friends around you who help out and believe. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Your friends were very, your friends deserve some credit. It's important a lot of to credit with the right people. You can't. You can't do this stuff on your own. You got to have a crazy vision, and you got people who buy into it. And like, it's just, you know, I'm always immensely grateful with for that. That's huge, you know. So yeah. <laughs> All right, I think yeah. we'll wrap up here. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was excellent to talk to you. I, I actually checked previously. It was, um, I think it was like one fifty, and I was like, has it been an hour and fifteen minutes? It must have just been fifty minutes, but. <laughs> No, it had, it had been two hours almost. I, yeah, that just flew by. That was really fun. Yeah, I think it went good. I feel like, yeah, because I'm always, whenever I give like uni lectures, you know, you're kind of always, the two hours passes, you look back and you kind of go, nah. and other times you're like, no, nah, we're all right. So I got, I got that kind of, yeah, yeah. Brain didn't go blank, felt somewhat articulate. Great chats, a lot of laughs, good yeah. stuff. I'm feeling the same. All right, uh, hopefully <laughs> we can do this again. Yeah, anytime. All right, see you later.